Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussaud. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey, Ann Friedman. Hey, I almost jumped in to be like, hey, you're Amina Tussaud. <laughs> 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 On today's agenda, we are talking fall books, and we have two special guests, Nessa Rappaport, author of the novel Evening, and Alice Wong, editor of the anthology Disability Visibility. I am very excited to talk about books with you today because we're not talking about our book. We are talking about other people's books. I love other people's books. No, God, (laughs) doesn't it feel so good not to talk about your own book? Listen, I love and am honored that people want to talk about our book and I do love our book, but I am, I am so ready for other people's books. OPB. Oh my gosh. I'm sick of her. Tell me what you're reading. Tell me what you're reading. And I am trying to read less and watch more movies right now, which is such a different mode for me, as you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's been like the TV watching has been very satisfying. The reading, though, has been like very, very, very sparse since we released our book. But I am revisiting some, you know, some older Zadie Smith tomes Mm. Um, on my bedside table right now is Feel Free. Um, we love an essay collection, and I am also rereading Angela's Ashes because a very special teenager in my life is reading it, and I needed to have something to like talk about. And I realized that I had not read that book since like high school, and actually, it still slaps. I am going to be honest and tell you, I don't think I've ever read that book. Really, it was such a like like big mythical like part of my I feel like high school experience Mm. I mean definitely I remember it being big it's like one of those books I obviously remember being everywhere but but yeah I just I don't know I think because it was like when I was a teenager I was like oh I don't want to read something that's popular it was like I was that kind of bratty teen so so yeah so I missed that window for it and um, never found my way back I don't know it's nice. It's just nice to know like kids who read because every once in a while they'll spark you to remember something. Um, another really important teen in my life is reading Twilight. And I have never read Twilight, but I've watched all the movies and I am considering reading Twilight. Strongly considering doing it. True story is that I read a couple of Twilight books for, I was like writing an article. I can't even remember how it came up, but it was for something I was writing many, many years ago. Like that back I'm, when they were I'm doing research, Twilight. Are you serious? Listen, Are you going to use that on me right now? Let me tell you, I have <laughs> like many, many kind of like gendered classics I have read because it w- involved like I was writing something wherein an editor referenced it. And I was like, I should probably actually read this book to understand if the way you're referencing it makes sense or not so that was that was what i i read twilight in probably like 2005 or six from what i understand the writing is riveting and i i am almost convinced to pick it back up or to pick it up for the first time rather i think that would be a nice transition back to books for you (laughs) i know i know well you know my feeling right that um if the movie is good i don't need to read the book so that's usually how I feel. I'm like, I'm sorry. Someone has done all this beautiful work for me. I don't need to go back to re- to visit that. But <laughs> I am really in a phase of I'm trying to watch more movies because I never watch movies. And it's been very nice. Well, I'm sorry to tell you this is not the movies episode. This is not the fall know, film episode. I, <laughs> I, was, I just wanted to be honest. I didn't want to be one of those people that comes to the books episode. And it's like, here are the seven trendy books I've read. I'm like, sometimes right. people don't be reading. I, right. You I don't, don't want to list right now. the things that you're going to read as opposed to things you have read or yeah. are currently reading. Yeah. I hear you. And I respect that. I respect that. What are you reading right now besides um, Fifty Shades of Grey? So my like turn my brain off immersive reading is N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth series, which I know was my kind of like late summer break read. And I am making my way slowly. I'm about halfway through that trilogy right now. I am really enjoying it. 
and it is also some tough apocalyptic vibes <laughs> that I cannot engage with all the time. So I am simultaneously reading other things. I really enjoyed a delightful novel called Parakeet by Marie-Hélène Bertino. It was like a quickie little one-day read that I just was like, yes, delightful. I would say it's like a magical realist novel, even though I have not read reviews that describe it as such. Maybe it is widely recognized as that. But a little bit of magic, but like rooted in reality was was a good mood for me. And then I just got, but have not started, the new essay collection from Eula Biss, which is called Having and Being Had. And that is just tantalizing me from my coffee table right now. And I will, I will probably start that very soon. I love this for you, reading books. So good. <laughs> I do like reading books now that you pointed out. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I am excited about today's book episode because I got to talk to the author of my favorite book that I've read this quarter. Tell me. The novel is called Evening. It was written by my friend Nessa Rappaport. Without giving you too many spoilers, I will say that the novel is about two sisters and their kind of youthful obsessions. You know, uh, a tragedy happens. Uh, there is some grieving that has to be had. You already know this about me. Like anything, any book that is about like complicated family dynamics. Family I secrets genre. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I'm like family secrets. Family secrets really is my catnip. I'm just like, how close to atonement can a book be? Like that's where I want to be all the time. Um, <laughs> On the atonement aton scale, is this one ten being ten being exactly atonement and one being has nothing like in common with atonement at all? Where does this book fall? This book like beats atonement. I gotta say, wow, eleven, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, atonement a better movie than it is a book. But let's focus on evening right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> back to back to focus. Okay. Back to this book and back to Nessa. This almost never happens on the show where we go into an in-depth discussion of who the author is. But I just really want to give Nessa a shout out because Nessa is also the mom of my friend Maddie. And uh, Maddie introduced us and it was a very, very, very good introduction and a good match because Nessa is truly... She's someone who like, you know, if she if she had an app every day where she could give you a meditation and um, just tell you the truth about your life and about how the world is organized, you would pay like a hundred dollars a day for that. So, so good. Like truly a lovely human who has like taught me so much about persevering in your writing mm. and and just like really keep at it and someone who's really prolific like she has written another another novel she has written a poetry collection she has written a memoir and Nessa really I think has um, really like poured a lot of herself in this novel so I'm excited for you to hear her talk about this let's listen I'm Nessa Rappaport and we're here to talk about my novel Evening Hi, Nessa. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm thrilled to be here. I am so excited that you're here, Nessa. It's It's been such a treat to just like read you this summer. And um, I'm really excited to talk about Evening. Can you tell us how long, um, how long you've been working on this book? <laughs> you asked the right question. This book was meant to be my easy book because I had written a kind of avant-garde novel that took me 10 beautiful years before this. And the first chapter came to me in an instant. And I thought the rest would go like that too. In 1990, believe it or not, it took me 26 years to figure out what these two sisters were fighting about just before one of them died so that they didn't talk again and how to resolve after one of them had died, the story of the secret that the living one discovers and needs to upend her idea of her family story in order to contend with it. Ah, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully put. I was so fascinated that you chose to write about this sister dynamic because in, you know, in some ways it's a very recognizable dynamic, whether you have siblings or not, just like very well-trodden territory. And at the same time, it is such a just, you know, a richly deep and specific kind of experience for everyone. So I just like wonder why you wanted to write about a family through the lens of, um, you know, like two sisters. It's funny. This is not an autobiographical novel. 
although as a magpie writer, you find you've taken all kinds of tidbits from your life and placed them in various ways in the book. Thankfully, I have not lost a sister. I'm actually the eldest of four sisters, very close in age, six years among all of us. And it's a lifelong bond. When I was an editor, I commissioned a book on adult sibling relationships. And one of the chief points that the wonderful writer Francine Clagsburn made was, no one knows you as long as a sibling besides your parents, but your parents leave the world eventually and your siblings ideally are with you. And I couldn't stop thinking about that. And yet siblings aren't chosen, they're given. And we choose our friends and we have a kind of chosen family, women of our 21st century age. But our siblings are there for us to think about, to shape, to shape us. And I've come to feel to make our peace about issues in the family that we may not be able to address unless they were in our lives. Mm, You are such a beautiful writer, Nessa. And narratively, like this story is told so interestingly, like you use the frame of Shiva to, to make the story unfold. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Well, some of us jokingly say Judaism is really good at death. We wish we didn't have that much experience of premature death, and we're not alone in our history, but we're sort of uniquely alone in our trauma. But we have the ritual of Shiva, which is seven days, really six and a half, where the mourners sit on low chairs and are visited throughout the day by anybody who wants to come and help console the mourner. The mourners do nothing. The food is made and brought to them. The prayer services are organized by others. Drinks are brought to them. They usually don't leave that low chair uh, while there are visitors there. People are always saying, can I get you anything? Do you need anything? And the idea is that people come and offer stories about the person who's gone, ask you for memories, especially if they didn't know the person Of course, humans being human, there's always people talking in the background, people talking about things that the mourners may not want to talk about because they're really not about the dead person, especially if the person's lived long and it's not as heartbreaking. But what one is supposed to do is be there solely present to comfort the mourners. And when you get up from Shiva after those, the funeral and then the following days, you're meant to walk around the block and re-enter the world And the idea is that grieving has certain amounts of finite time. The first three days are the most intense in our tradition. The seven are the next. There is a marker at 30. And one says Kaddish for immediate relatives, parents and siblings and God forbid children for 11 months. And then, as I've learned only in my adult life, the tradition does not want you to be in that state of intense grief forever. You're meant to slowly re-enter the world. I've often thought about people wearing widow's weeds or black in other cultures or in the Victorian era and wish that there were a way in 21st century New York to wear some small signal on your clothes after the immediate death, just to let people know that when they say, how are you, you're still grieving. Uh, I I think about that a lot because, you know, you're right. It's that, that initial period of mourning, I think so many people recognize and then, and then you were kind of left to carry that grief, you know, indefinitely. And, and, and it's hard, it is really hard to talk about and it is really hard to signal. I also just like found the novel, I think, just really powerful because we don't really have a word for when you are mourning your sibling, you know, there, there are other kinds of grief that are very, um, they're recognized and, you know, in a way that like you have a label. Right. You can be a or you could be an orphan. And uh, and with siblings, that just it just doesn't exist. And it left me thinking a lot about, you know, like obviously I was like a <laughs> I was thinking a lot about my relationship with my own siblings and how complicated that is when you start making new family structures. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, the bond between Eve and Tam and how the stories that um, that Eve told herself in about her childhood is not necessarily, um, you know, the story that is confirmed to her at Shiva. Yes, we stereotype one another as siblings. I'll tell you something funny, Amina. My mother was is still alive, and 
is or was one of five, she was the only daughter. And when she had four girls and no boys, her big anxiety was what if we wanted each other's boyfriends? Believe me, it wasn't her only anxiety, but she was really, (laughs) she was about raising teenagers, especially since she had been brought up in the depression where there was a lot of deference to one's parents and they had a lot of authority. My father also, by the way, was one of three brothers, no sisters. So you can imagine And what she didn't know was we sisters also polarize each other. If one sister gets an area of expertise, the other sister may really not only not want to compete, but run as far as she can from entering that domain. What interested me about even Tam was on the surface, Tam is the really successful sister. This novel set in Canada, which is where I was born, and Tam is an eminent TV journalist, the most well-known national interviewer, woman TV journalist. Whereas Eve is still kind of muddling through her life. She has her obsessions and fixations. She's writing a dissertation she can't quite finish. She's really immersed in the world of British women writers between the wars. In particular, a writer named Winifred Holtby, who had a very passionate non-sexual friendship, a remarkable friendship with the more well-known writer, Vera Britton, about which Vera Britton wrote an entire book. What I wanted to do was show in some ways that these stereotypes don't quite obtain. The world thinks that Eve is obviously jealous of Tam, but she truly isn't. She's not in denial. She's not. She admires her, but she doesn't understand her, really, because Tam is a driven, ambitious one point to another person. And she has been from her childhood. I give a description of Tam's written daily diary that reads like a soldier's manual. Get up at X, do Y, spend half a second on toothbrushing, (laughs) that kind of thing. Whereas Eve is very discursive and she ruminates and she's fascinated by the past with which exasperates Tam. Tam cannot understand why Eve just doesn't get going. Don't you know enough about Winifred Holtby? Can't you finish your PhD? And I think at one point she says in the novel, if this were me, I would already be on the talk shows talking about her. Eve laughs and says, I'm sure you would. Meanwhile, Eve is in love with or half engaged with, not to, but with her halftime boyfriend who lives half the time in Britain and half the time in New York, who's a kind of prodigy and is in an academic who's engaged in thinking about reading in these very postmodern theoretical ways. And all Eve wants to do is crawl under the covers and read a novel end to end forever. So there are a lot of contrasts that I put into place. Yeah. I was trying to go against some of what you might think. And I don't want to spoil the journey that Eve goes on to really turn around how she has to think about her sister from what she discovers during the Shiva. But I will say that I, it's a very naturalistic novel, but Tam is always in Eve's head talking because that's the thing about sisters. You internalize their points of view even if you don't like them. I mean, you're right. There are the people that have known you the longest in, you know, in a lot of ways. The thing that I was thinking about so much when I was reading this is just how I like I'm someone who is constantly scrutinizing my own memories all of the time, just all like to to an obsessive degree. The the movie of my um of my childhood plays in my mind over and over and over again. And I don't think that's true for everyone, but I think that reading about someone who is also just doing that in this very claustrophobic way is very much like in their thought in their thoughts and still being able to to learn new information or to shift perspective that was something that was really um it was like very illuminating for me and i think that you you wrote that like very 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 well well thank you i was thinking about sisters and thinking about being women and feminists and i was struck by this irony that applies to my characters as well, which is one spends one's entire life trying to acquire and implement agency, a voice in the world, fortitude as a woman, not letting oneself be swayed by mansplaining or the structural issues of being a woman in this world. 
And yet the greatest lesson life has to teach us is really a kind of humility, which I've come to later in my life, where I realize I kind of know nothing. And I think this pandemic has really shown us that one second after we're sure of something, anything, anything can happen. Not only surprises for the bad, which I feel braced for, but also surprises for the good, including, may I say, our talking together, Amina, and not just on this recording, but in life. And so I was thinking about that paradox that just as we move through our adult lives as women, becoming more and more able to be agents of our life, the learning we have to acquire is to really understand that it's not all up to us. Uh, but why can't it just be all up to us? <laughs> you, you say that and you, my, inner anxious, my inner anxious child just rises up immediately. <laughs> well, I want to say two things about that. One is, don't we all wish that we could inject our close women friends with everything we've learned so they wouldn't have to find out the hard way? Every single thing. We can't do it. We have to get there on our own. And yet... Our girlfriends tell us things, and 10 years later, we finally understand exactly what they meant. So we have to keep at it and acquire our wisdom as we can, ruminating. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say was not everybody scrupulously reviews her past every day to see what she can glean. I want to quote my friend Robin, who says, when we were young, we thought everything was psychology, and we could easily name what our parents did wrong psychologically, but now we know that everything is biology. And there are people with different temper- temperaments. Not everybody is sitting there as we are wondering all the time, how did this happen to us? Why do I think this? How did I get here? And the last thing I want to say about that, which I know you must share, is our siblings had completely different childhoods from ours, even if they're very close in age to us. I mean, that is the thing that is so wild to me. Like, I grew up in a home where I think my parents were actually very fair in how, um, you know, they, they raised us. It was that we, we got punished the same way. We got loved the same way. They were very consistent, you know, in the ways that they, they parented us. And there are three different humans who emerge from that same household. I so know what you mean. And not only three different humans, but our memories are truly different. I can put something out there. We now have Zoom calls among the four of us because, of course, nobody can travel anywhere these days. I can put something out there, not only a memory I suspect, but one I'm very confident happened. And three different sisters remember it differently. And I've learned they may be right. Any one of them may be right. I I keep remembering that the first book of yours that I read is A Woman's Book of Grieving, this um, very beautiful collection of poems and verses that are all trying to capture the, how unsurmountable grief is. And I find that these, you know, that book and your novel are in conversation with each other in the sense that, you know, one, we are, we are truly in a moment of grieving you are able like in this very unique way to, to give words to, to the weight of grief and just how crushing it is and also just how inevitable it is in some ways, you know, I'm like anything about grief is like straight from, uh, you know, like biblical lamentations. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm like that, that is truly the frame for, for understanding what's going on here. I wonder if you can speak to your writing about grief and why you do it, but also how you find the words to really describe something that is so hard to describe. I'm really glad you asked me that. I'm not sure I would have remembered to say this, but I have lost four extremely close women friends, the kind that are in what I call tier one, those very few people in whom one can confide everything, the real deal. I lost them all in different, well, two were within two weeks, some from long illnesses, one from a brain aneurysm that happened in one instant. And I felt it was not possible in our culture to really name that particular kind of grief, as you mentioned before, which is to lose one's close, close woman friends. I have a best friend in the galaxy, as you do, and we have a deal that we'll jump off a cliff together at exactly the same time. (laughs) I don't want to live one second past her not being in the world, and neither does she. There's a little poem about that, too, in the grieving book, because I talk about how our children will kind of tolerate each other because the mothers are really close, but the kids, you know how it is. So 
I would actually like to name them. I would like to say their names, which are Linda and Lisa and Mimi and Liz. One of them is, is a dedication and a set of poems in the grief book. And the other three are the dedicatees, if there is such a word, in evening, because that experience shaped me so much in recognizing that there was no ritual for women to mourn the loss of a very close woman friend. And I think there should be. It's actually very hard to create modern ritual. They can be very thin and pink and balloony, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We we depend on ancient traditions to help us grieve because they have served people for millennia and they work to get back to your first question about Shiva. And I do understand, especially before antibiotics, why traditions don't have many, many kinds of ritual for every kind of loss, because there was so much loss. So many infants died, war, all the things we know that one would be grieving all the time. And yet in our era, I really encourage people gifted at ritual to create for us in a vocabulary of various traditions, rituals that work for grieving a woman friend. You asked about how I found the words. My sister has told me one of them, don't say this, Nessa, but I'm going to say it. I can't cook. I can't drive. The one thing God gave me is language. And like so many women, people would say to me when I was young, you're so articulate. I I actually didn't know what they were talking about because all I did was talk. But now, like so many women, I always say just because a talent comes as easily as breathing doesn't mean it's not a gift. And I recognize that this can be my contribution, that I have the words. I was one of those children that read when I walked down the stairs, read in school, read with a book underneath my textbook. My mother would not buy me Nancy Drew books, nor would her mother buy her Nancy Drew books. So I literally stood in what was then Cole's bookstore in Toronto and read an entire Nancy Drew. I was the girlfriend you never wanted to invite over because if I saw that you had a book I liked, I stopped playing with you and read the book. (laughs) Sorry, but I did. (laughs) No, I love that. I love that. I think that's the natural outcome when you're that kind of reader. And I'm still, reading is my highest passion. And I always say when my children were young, I didn't hear their importuning if I was in the middle of a book. They had to shake me, mom, mom, as I had to shake my mother, she would say, hmm, hmm. And I would say to her, you have your reading voice on. And she would say, oh, that's what my mother did too. So I'm third generation of hmm, hmm. I love this. We would have so been friends. You would have just come over to read all of my books and we would have not talked to each other for hours. Completely. My family's idea of socializing was to sit in the living room, each of us reading a book, and it didn't have to be a high literature book either, may I say, often not, more often not, and then look up once in a while and say, listen to this, which was always annoying to the other people who didn't want to be interrupted from their reading. Ugh, I love, I love that very specific memory. I feel like everything is so heavy right now. And it was so, um, it just felt like a real kindness to get lost in your work for um, for a few hours. And I'm just like very grateful for, um, you know, your contribution to, liter- to literature. It's beautiful. Well, Amina, thank you for loving my words. And I would like to say to anybody who wants to read Evening that it's also very funny and that Eve... Our narrator heroine does come to a kind of peace. I think since we've spoken so much about grieving, and she is grieving, it's also important to say that one can attain a complex peace. Back to Eve for one second. Um, She is funny. She is messy. She, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm like she's a real like three dimensional lady. And um, like, you know, that that experience sometimes of uh, you're reading something where you're like, oh, yeah, like some of this is really heavy or you are very you're very invested in your own, um, you know, like what you are projecting into the novel, which for me was very much like, what is my relationship with my sister like? Like, what will happen when I die? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then having these like funny asides or she, you know, like her romantic life is unfolding in the in this other part. Of yeah, you're like, okay, you're like, yes, this is exactly how life is. Nothing is siloed to one, uh, you know, like, 
you don't get to be um to just be like lost in your thoughts and life doesn't just happen and i really just appreciated that well i do want to say one last thing even though i've said one last thing which is your book with Anne captures what I call the eros of these kinds of friendships. And I don't mean erotic. I mean eros in the sense that it's a kind of enchanted love affair. And I think the real love affair in this novel is between Eve and her sister. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, relationships with sisters are hard. Relationships with siblings and family is hard. Um, not everyone gets to have enchanted family life. So I think it's important to to have these like complicated narratives about how it can be. So thank you so much for coming on Call Your Girlfriend, Nessa. Evening is available wherever you buy books, especially at your local indie bookstore. You will not regret reading it. Thank you for having me, Amina. It was a delight. Oh, yes, Nessa. Nessa is the best. Nessa is the best. And again, thank you to Maddie for the gift of Nessa because we love it when friends share the the good people in their lives. Mm. Let's take a quick break. So next up, I talked to an incredible activist, editor, writer, podcaster, curator, all of these things, Alice Wong. She is the editor most recently of the anthology Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century. And this collection is really, I don't know, I am enjoying it so much. I am learning so much from it. And there are many essays in it. I would say it veers on the side of shorter and more, which I love because it's sort of like dipping into all of these different perspectives on an identity that is incredibly varied and diverse. Yeah, I could not recommend it more highly as the kind of book that you maybe don't sit down and read cover to cover, but that you pick up and um, when you have a minute and read a few of the essays and then put it down and a few days later dip in again. I have to say I really agree with that because, um, you know, it's like sometimes an anthology is too much and other times it's just perfect. And with this one, every single essay I read is, um, you know, obviously in conversation with the rest of them, but they're so different and they're told so well by this very unique perspective of the person who is writing. And it's been really nice to read a couple of them and, you know, have some time to reflect and think and come back to the book over and over again. So... I really have to say I am enjoying the the reading experience of that. Yeah, and and Alice Wong because she works in so many different types of media, I think this collection like feels broad on that front as well. I mean, she created the Disability Visibility Project, which is um, a community of people that comes together to share and create an amplified disability media and culture. And then she also hosts the Disability Visibility Podcast. So you can go and listen to that for more stories in a different medium. And there's something I love. I mean, much like you were saying about, you know, Nessa working in all of these different genres, like, I don't know, there is a real depth to this anthology, I think, because Alice works in so many different media. I'm excited to hear you and Alice talk. Alice, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, So Disability Visibility is the title of this community media project you run and your podcast and um, this new book that, that Aminatu and I are both reading. And I'm wondering why you chose it. If you could talk us back to the beginning where you were like, this is the title for this, this umbrella title for the work you're doing. Yeah, so at the very beginning of the Disability Visibility Projects, it was really just a one-year oral history campaign. I formed a community partnership with StoryCorps, which is a national uh, oral history nonprofit. And, you know, I thought, okay, I need a, a day for this project. It's all about encouraging disabled people to tell their own stories in the lead up to the 25th anniversary of the Marriages with Disabilities Act, which was in 2015. 
Did I need a hook? I need something catchy. That really captures uh, the kind of purpose, you know, just to shine a light and to center it on disabled people, whether it's disability history, disability stories, disability culture. It's about being visible, uh, not just literally, but, you know, showing up everywhere. I was struck reading um, many of the essays in this collection by the way they describe this tension between the experience of feeling invisible in politics or in the culture at large or in the concerns of even friends and family, and at the same time also hyper-visible, you know, very um, kind of othered um, by strangers when in public or something like that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that invisible, hyper-visible um, dichotomy that I read as one of the themes that came up in the book. Yeah, for real. I mean, there's, you know, all types of visibility, but at the same time, you know, we're living in a, in a society. Uh, we're living in a society that was, they were built for us, and a society that frankly does not value or want us. I mean, uh, if you want to talk about the coronavirus and this, you know, major shitstorm, uh, dumpster fire that we're in, <laughs> we see clearly, you know, eugenics at work, you know. Uh, certain people are considered disposable. Yeah, very much this is about brown, black, indigenous people, poor people, older people, and very clearly disabled people. And that is part of the invisibility in terms of just the lack of uh, power, I guess, or influence, the fact that, you know, states and countries that Decision makers have, like, you know, no qualms about, you know, say, oh, you know, this uh, virus, it only affects, you know, high risk people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's only, you know, don't worry about it. It's just those people that don't get it. And, you know, everybody else is going to be like a bad flu. So, you know, like, just, you know, to help with older disabled people die because, you know, their lives just weren't that valuable to begin with. And that's part of the invisibility, but part of the hyper-visibility is very much about the harassment and microaggressions and just a lot of kind of scrutiny about disabled people. You know, so many people speculate on the president's health Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly, he is a despicable human being. I would never have nothing but horrible things to say about him. But I don't think anybody should be judged about their mental status or their disability uh, unless the person is confirmed something. Because, you know, those kinds of rhetoric a lot of ableist language is used in politics. The word crazy is something that I've learned to not say anymore. Mm. Even though these times are really horrible, it's surreal, but people with mental health disabilities, oh, this is harmful. So, uh, ableism is everywhere. So there's that kind of Hypervisibility that's very painful. It can be very unsafe. But there is this other aspect of visibility, which is very much an act of resistance. There's an act of defiance, of joy, of pleasure, and of pride. And I think that's, you know, tied into identity as well.
The collection opens with an essay by Harriet McBride Johnson that was originally published in the New York Times in 2003. And you make reference to this in your intro, but I'm hoping you can tell me what it was like for you to read her essay in the Times back then and why you wanted to open the collection with it. Yeah, Harriet McBride Johnson, you know, I really looked up to her. I think, you know, she was just a badass disabled activist, writer, lawyer. Uh, when I read this piece, I just, so much of what she experienced and wrote about going head to head with people who believe that disabled people are better off dead. And this is something I experienced. Uh, and also just the everyday experiences uh, that Harriet describes in terms of what's entailed when she travels, when she works with her personal care attendants. You know, these are all things that, you know, echoed my own personal life. And to see her write with such serious precision and just wit, you know, with such a clarity, it just blew me away. And, uh, you know, she's the kind of role model I wish I had as a kid. You know, I was just so grateful to, to read her work and, this is one essay that I deliberately put at the very first, as the first essay, because if there is one essay a reader is going to read for this anthology, I want it to be Harriet's, because mm-hmm. it really could give, I think, non-disabled people just a small glimpse of what ableism looks like. And I think, you know, that to me is hopefully the start. What did you you think about it? Oh, it blew me away. I mean, I immediately went to look up more of her work. Um, I had not read her work before. I am uh, sorry to say, although, you know, I've been working my way through what I can find online and have ordered um, her memoir. But um, I was struck by the fact that when I went searching for more of her work, I noticed that when she died five years after this article was published, the New York Times asked Peter Singer, who is the person who was denying her humanity, to write a remembrance of her. And I really like somehow seeing that really just underscored every single point that she made in that essay you excerpted. It made me it made me so angry when I saw that. I'm so glad that you're angry because that is, you know, again, it's not disabled people speaking for disabled people. And of all people, a philosopher who has a massive platform who is highly regarded, like this guy is really famous and people just don't seem to have find it problematic that he advocates for the infanticide of disabled people. Mm. So I still don't understand how people just don't, you know, they love his, you know, work on ethics and the way like, about animal rights and just, you know, all of these things the philosophers are interesting thought experiments. Well, you know what? These thought experiments they play out every day to disabled people and, you know, this is why, uh, you know, we see medical triage guidelines at the time of COVID-19 that they prioritize people solely on the basis of disability because the presumption underlying having a disability is that your quality of life is automatically less than a non-disabled person. And that's fucked up. That is completely fucked up. 
Yeah, I find myself thinking about um, a line. I think it's a, it's it's definitely a later essay in the book. I think it's um, Leah Lakshmi uh, Piepsa Summer Sinha's essay. They say something to the effect of power lying in the ways that disabled people organize that are unknowable to the abled. And I don't know, I found myself thinking about that a little bit, about how this the unknowable joys and complexities of living with disability being part of what's happening here and part of the kind of really toxic dynamics that you're describing as well. Yeah, and I see it as a real, you know, generative force. It is a source of creativity. It is, you know, when you're living in a world that's inaccessible, you kind of like driver stuff, you know. There's, <laughs> you know, when you don't have universal health care and that places are still not accessible much less transportation you learn how to do things and you know there's such a wealth of wisdom and brilliance in disabled people mm. and I think this book just offers a glimpse of it I think uh, you know all of these distributors are just brilliant they're powerful what they say, they have things to say. And that to me is what's what we need more of. Well, that seems like a perfect lead-in to my question for you about another part in your introduction where you specifically call on the publishing industry to be more attuned to the underrepresentation of the disability community, both among you know, editors and also among the the writers they're commissioning. That was very front of mind for me as I went to read more from the writers who I discovered through this anthology. <laughs> I wonder, I found myself wondering if this book is sort of, uh, look, see how easy it was for me to find all of these stories? Like, here you go, publishers. Like, can you do a fraction of this now on your own? Like, I, I know it is a direct challenge to them as well, but um, maybe maybe you can talk a bit about that. The challenge to publishing. Yeah, I do think that just like every other major field and discipline, there's simply not enough disabled people. Even though, you know, in the United States, there's at least the one in four people with some sort of disability. And, you know, they're actually present, but probably not willing to disclose, you know, and I think this is another problem in our culture. Another reason why identity and visibility is so important because it hopefully encourages other people to want to be visible and to be represented. And, you know, clearly the I am all for the reckoning that's happening in the publishing industry regarding race and regarding their poor track record of publishing black and brown writers, indigenous writers, and writers of color. And I think this speaks to just the system as well. As well. Yeah, the publishing industry is overwhelmingly white and, you know, does not, you know, think about or maybe just, you know, performatively, they care about diversity, but they're not willing to make the changes in terms of sharing that power with other people. Mm. It's taking risks, taking risks, because... People are just so stuck in what they think they know. And I think, you know, some of this stuff about publishing that's so New York-centric, you know, that's, mm. you know, somehow, like, if you're not in New York City, you know, you don't have access, which I think now, after the pandemic, we see now that's, you know, not the case, but also the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people who, without, you know, 
without this would not be able to be able to write a book, you know, people who have who don't have to worry about working two jobs, you know, things like that. I think there's so many amazing storytellers out there that just need more support. The power of flexing as an editor is really try not to think, try not to cater or be too preoccupied about what not disabled people expect. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of why these contributors may be a little bit more challenging. And I think that's, that to me is very exciting. That's where the potential really is. Because I want readers to be changed. You know, I really want to, I really want to leave readers wanting to learn more, but also to really just change afterwards. Well, it worked for me. Um, I hope it works for many people who will pick this up after um, hearing our conversation on this episode. And um, I want to thank you for the curatorial work and for introducing me to all these writers who I now get to dive into the rest of their work, not just the essays in this collection. Thank you. There's also a, you know, a reading list in the back because, you know, I really wanted people to, to use this book as a springboard. This is not the one definitive book and there are so many other books and just podcasts and just all kinds of great media out there. So there's a really wonderful reading list that will help direct people who want to learn more. Awesome. Alice, thank you so much for your work and uh, for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. Wow, that was so great. That was so great. And I am so excited to buy more copies of this book and recommend it to friends. Alice Wong, what a talent. Yes, truly. All right, I will see you on the internet. I will see you on the internet. Bye, boo. Bye. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>